Chapter 7, Part 3 From the sermon series, The Gospel of John Spoken by Pastor Kevin Butcher So, this morning we're, we're going to talk from uh, John 7 And as Peter kind of alluded to just a moment ago Can you imagine they have a guest speaker come in And they ask you to join their series, which is fine Last week we would have talked about, you know The famous passage where Jesus said, I am the living water and uh, if you know me, out of you will pour rivers of living water. And then next week, you're going to look at John 8, that famous story of the woman caught in adultery where, you know, Jesus blesses her and forgives her and whatever. They don't give me either of those two passages. They give me one of the most obscure passages in the Gospel of John. So um, appreciate you, bro. Appreciate you. But before, before we look at that text, I just wanted to show you a picture of our rooted team. Um, yeah, this was at our first fundraiser that we've ever had. This was earlier in the year. You see me on the left. Right next to me is our Colorado administrator, who happens to be my oldest daughter, who just uh, turned 40. And I only mention that because when I embrace her, I still think of her as a two-year-old little girl. And then uh, our um, my, my associate executive director, uh, William Mack, Pastor William Mack, who has 40 year, or 20 years in ministry. He's also a trained spiritual director. Then you have Pastor Pam Pangborn, who also has 20 years in pastoral ministry, and she is uh, a therapist as well. And then you have Pastor Kevin Hu, who is next uh, from Oakland, California. He comes to us in a lot of brokenness. His church closed down a couple of years ago, but he... he Someday he's going to be sitting across the screen from pastors. Right now, he and his family are trying to heal. And uh, he does all of our communications, PowerPoints, you know, everything on social media. And then our Detroit administrator, Susan Lebinsky, who, by the way, in my first book, Choose and Choose Again, she is the ex-heroin addict that I write about in our first book. So a lot of redemption on that screen. I cannot tell you what a joy it is to work with these human beings. And this is who you support as we work with pastors and their spouses and families, there's also a lot of wound there. So thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. So as you look at um, this particular text this morning, it, at first glance, and I've got to admit, you know, uh, when I first glanced, I thought, this is a throwaway text. Now you say, wait a minute, can you ever throw away any part of the word of God? Well, absolutely not. All scripture is inspired by God and whatever, and it's true. But it looks like there are just a few details to take the narrative forward. But actually, upon second glance, there's something very powerful here about us, about our Christ, about our broken world that is both challenging and very I think very, very encouraging. So let's look at this text. We have it on the screen for you. Um, and this is what the text says. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him, referring to Jesus? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them and said, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers the Pharisees believed in him, a question that expects in the Greek language an answer of absolutely not. And this crowd that doesn't know him or doesn't know the law is absolutely accursed. You could not say anything more negative about a human being in the Jewish faith than to say you're accursed. But Nicodemus, and John gives this editorial comment, the one who came to Jesus by night 
back in John 3, he's referencing a few chapters earlier, being one of them, in other words, being one of the Pharisees, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him? Before he, before he sees and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has risen out of Galilee. So let's take a look, first of all, at the context. There's four things I'd like you just to briefly um, look at to help you understand what's going on in this text. First of all, uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is one of three pilgrimage feasts in, um, in Israel's um, um, uh, theological history. And in this particular feast, they celebrate God's provision and shelter during the 40 years in the wilderness. They would actually come to Jerusalem from all around the ancient Near East, and they would set up literal um, little tents in the middle of Jerusalem to remember how their ancestors lived in those kinds of shelters when they were traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land years and years ago. Secondly, his reputation as a healer and miracle worker has absolutely spread everywhere, especially in Jerusalem. So think about it, just in the first chap six chapters of the Gospel of John, he's turned water into wine, he's healed a nobleman's son, he touched the, the a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, and he fed the 5,000. All of those things have happened in just the first six chapters, and of course, it was a verbal culture. Um, sto story was huge. They didn't have a lot of written documents, obviously, but everyone was telling stories. So this man's reputation had preceded him, especially as a miracle worker and a healer. And then thirdly, as a rabbi, as a prophet, Jesus was already known to be saying some astounding things about himself. So just a chapter earlier in John chapter six, he says to a crowd who eventually dispersed because they thought this is too hard of a saying, he says, I am the living bread from heaven, talking about uh, Moses and the children of Israel when God provided manna. And in fact, in this moment, he's literally subtly but truly claiming to be the Deuteronomy 18 prophet, which is one of the first uh, prophecies in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. There will be one who will come and be with you, who will be like Moses. When he says, I am the living bread from heaven, and then he goes on to say, um, if you eat of me, you will live forever. He was literally claiming to be the one that was prophesied about in, in Deuteronomy 18. You, can, you can't even imagine how blasphemous this was to Jewish culture in that era. And then in John 7, just the previous text, uh, it was, uh, again, during the Feast of Tabernacles, for seven days in a row, they would go to the Pool of Siloam as one of the rituals, and there would be a long procession taking water from the Pool of Siloam and go up to a certain part of the, uh, port, one of the porticos in the temple area, and they would pour out water and quote some prophecies about God giving water to the Israelites and God being water. And on the eighth day, when there was no water poured, Jesus, at that very moment when it would have been poured, he stood up and said, I am the living water. If you drink of me, rivers of living water will pour out of you. So I got to tell you, man, by the time, and this is the fourth thing you need to know, the people have heard all of this about him. The people are spellbound, but there you go. But they're arguing, who is he? And what do we do with him? You've got to feel the brewing chaos in Jerusalem. The, the city is already packed with pilgrims from around, again, the ancient Near East. 
the people are stirred up and so the religious leaders fearing there's gonna be some kind of an uprising, and of course they're under the control of Rome. Roman soldiers are everywhere, so you gotta know that there's some political motivation to keep things chill. And so the Pharisees and the chief priests, who are usually Sadducees, they sent the temple police to take Jesus and to bring him in, but no one laid hands on him, it says in verse 41. And that takes us up until the moment that we're looking at this morning in the text. So, I guess I wanna talk about this text around the three main players and how they respond to Jesus. And I'm going to invite you to be gut level honest with yourself this morning. You know, it's funny, you have, when people are in church, you have to tell them to be honest. But look, I'm a human being just like you, and we live so defended, don't we? Because we get afraid, and I understand that. I live with my own anxieties and, and, and can wear a mask sometimes, even with my, myself. But as Pastor Peter said earlier, it, is there any other safer place than this on the planet? It's not perfectly safe because we're human beings. But if this isn't a place where we can come and take off the mask, starting with ourselves and then with one another as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, then there really is no safe place for us. So yes, I'm inviting you, even in church, especially in church, to be gut level honest with yourself, to ask yourself as we go through these three players in this narrative, who am I in this story? Where do I find myself in this story? So the first player is five or six folks, probably called the Temple Guard. They are the officers in the New King James. They were the folk who took care of business, the police force of the temple area, if you will. And they were sent out to get Jesus and to bring him back. And when they came back, they only said this, no man ever spoke like this man. Now, it would have been very likely, I mean, if I would have been them, knowing what I'm going to tell you just now about how much power the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, which is like the, the, ruling, court, the ruling court in, the temp, in, in Judaism, how much power they had over the temple guard then you would think at least if they didn't bring back Jesus, they would come up with some excuses. I mean, if it would have been me, I would have just said, have you seen the people? Man, they're going nuts. And there's only five or six of us, man. We got scared. But they don't say anything like that. There are no excuses. All they say is, no one ever spoke. No man ever spoke like this man. All they shared was the impact of Jesus, they, they didn't meet him personally, they didn't have a, a cup of coffee with him. They just saw him and they heard him and they were touched to the point that all they had to say to this intimidating group of folk who had power over them was no one, you have to understand, no one. Look, I know what you sent us to do, but just seeing him, just hearing him, no one ever spoke like this man. And this is even more astounding when you consider that in the literature 
I think this line comes out of a commentator named Marcus Dodds, you know, back in the day. He said, in, a, in, he said, in that day, the officers of an, an ancient Near Eastern court, especially there in Israel, are apt to be entirely mechanical. In other words, these guard, this guard was literally just a robot-like tool of their superiors. Now, to give you a feel of this, um, out of mo uh, filmdom history, I took this shot of some other folk, some other guard. If you've watched The Wizard of Oz, you know what we're looking at here. If you haven't, then you have no idea what this illustration is about. But you can see the cowardly lion and the tin man and the scarecrow that have donned the garb of this palace guard who are under the control of the white witch, or not the white witch, the, uh, the wicked witch. And they did, as you know in the story, everything that the witch said without asking even really cruel things until the spell was broken. And I show you this image. If, how many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz? And about half of you. So half of you really are feeling this illustration. The rest of you are going, what is he talking about? But the point is, um, these guys were like those guys under the control of the Pharisaic community. And what's even more remarkable is that there were probably five, six, seven, eight of them because of the size of the crowd. And all of them agreed, not one dissenter in that community, all eight of them, different personalities, different backgrounds, different degree of spiritual need. All of them said, no one has ever spoken like this man. Now, we can't pause here long, but I want you to feel this. Because I want to tell you, this temple guard, they felt something when they saw Jesus. I was thinking as I was looking at this text in the last month about the first time that I met my wife, Carla. I was a senior at university, and she was a freshman. And I was the captain of the football team in that small little university where I played. I remember going into this girl's dorm. It was a small town, so there was nowhere else to go, literally. And it was homecoming evening. And so we went to the girl's dorm. We were standing there looking awkward, me and a bunch of freshmen that I was trying to keep out of trouble. And I heard this woman laugh, this young girl laugh. And I literally said to myself, I'll never forget it, I've got to know who belongs to that laugh. So before I ever saw her, I was touched by her and what was coming out of her. I turned around and it was Carla, and of course, like a Hallmark card, I started to move slowly toward her. <laughs> that isn't the way it was happening. She was dating this other football player at the time. And as I might have told you the story in the past, look who won, yeah. that guy, I don't know where he is. But here's the deal, when I saw her, something happened. I really couldn't explain it. And so when these guys saw Jesus and heard a few things that he was saying, they couldn't resist him. And by the time they got back to report that they hadn't picked him up after all, I think they were already on their way home to him. No one had preached them a sermon. No one had given them a list of apologetic reasons why they should believe that this was the Messiah. His presence was drawing them home to the heart of God. This reminds us, by the way, this happens all through John with the woman at the well with the lame man at the pool, with the blind man coming up in John chapter 9. He goes, I don't know who this guy is. This I can tell you. Once I was blind and now I see. They're not really sure who he is. 
but their hearts are drawn to him because they're born like you and I are born with a longing for him. It reminds us of this core reality. This is a neurobiological truth. Dr. Kurt Thompson, who wrote several books, he's a Christian psychiatrist, he's a brain scientist. He says, we all come out of the womb looking for someone, looking for us with love and delight. The moment we're born, we're saying, I don't know who I am. Would someone love me? Would someone tell me my value by the way they love me? The neurobiological community goes on to say that our brains aren't wired to respond to rules. Which, by the way, this is an aside. Do you know what most non-believers think Christianity is about? The rules. Is it a wonder that they don't necessarily always respond because they don't know that it's not about that, that it's about not just love, but the one who is love? And so... In this context, these brothers were just responding to the way they had been created by God, their Abba, their Father. When they saw the one who is love, they began to come home. Reminds me of my own story, man. When I was five years old, I was already, I was raised in a shame-based family. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So at the age of five, I already felt like, am I safe? wasn't about being physically safe, maybe a little bit. There was, there was some violence in our home, but it was mostly, am I emotionally safe? The, I don't have time to get into that detail, but you know what I'm saying? But when I heard one night in the back of a church in northern Indiana, in the middle of winter, when I heard a pastor way up there, uh, you know, and I was sitting back here, two-thirds of the way back in the pew, and all the other little kids my age were tearing pages out of hymn books or doing something that five-year-old kids do. <laughs> but this little shame-based boy who didn't know a lick of theology, didn't know any of the theories of the atonement. When I saw that guy tell me about this one who loved me, my heart began to respond because that's the way my heart was created. These guys might remind you of your story. Man, I want to be like these guys. I don't want to ever forget that this same Jesus who drew me back then is the Jesus who is still present to me now. So that when I get up in the morning and I don't see the Ten Commandments on the wall, but I see him, that my heart is stirred anew. There's no must, there's no shoulds, there's no oughts, there's just him. And I begin to be drawn to him over again, over anew, just like I was 25 years ago when I was five years old. I'm hurt that you laughed at that joke, but I understand. And then just one more thought before we move to the Pharisees. This also reminds us of what we're about. Sometimes we think our job is to convince people to become Christians. It's not about that. It's about displaying him in our lives so that people begin to be drawn. There's a young brother, well, he's actually fairly old, but younger than me in our neighborhood. Just been hanging out with him in our little cul-de-sac for the last couple of years. A Couple of weeks ago, he asked me to go to this beer fest with him. And so, like the sacrificial servant that I am, <laughs> I said yes. All for you, Lord. Um, but literally, We'd, it was a rainy day. We'd been there for I don't know how long at that beer fest. And, 
And he'd had a few, I got I to gotta admit. You know, he wasn't drunk, but he'd had a few, so his defenses were down. And we were standing there alone at the end of this day. For the first time, he said to me, I didn't even know he had acknowledged what I did for a living, my faith, whatever. For the first time, he said to me, and I've been thinking a lot about death. I've had a couple of my friends die. He said, I wonder if we could talk about that sometime. And I just thought, I haven't tried to make him do anything. I just need to continue to fall in love here and then let people see him in broken, broken me, in broken me, and then they will start to come home. So the second, the second group is the Pharisees, and they're mentioned three times in this text, so you can tell that John thinks that they've got some control here, and literally in the structure of that day, they did. And they, along with the, as I mentioned earlier, the chief priests who were often the Sadducees, we don't have time to get into the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they were part of a larger ruling body called the Sanhedrin, like the Israeli Supreme Court. And these guys have gotten a bad rap because by definition, they were not bad guys. Their community, the Pharisaical community, emerged in the early second century BC, which was a very dark time in Israel's history, you might remember, you've probably heard this anecdotally, that um, when the uh, Seleucid ruler at that time from the Seleucid dynasty came into Jerusalem, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. He came into Jerusalem, he built an altar on top of the altar in the temple, and then sacrificed a pig on that altar. You probably have heard that story in some way. By the way, what happened next is where Hanukkah comes from, because this group of warriors uh, that were called the Maccabees revolted, took over power, and Hanukkah celebrates that revolt. So they reclaimed power for Israel. Several religious groups emerged during that time, including the Pharisees. And this is what I want you to get out of this section, if you get nothing else. What I'm going to talk about, uh, first of all, what they were known for. And you're going to notice that none of the things they were known for are a bad thing. They're all really good things. But don't ever forget this, my brothers and sisters. When a good thing becomes the main thing, it is a bad thing. So watch this, watch this. First of all, they were known for resisting assimilation into Greek culture. I mean, these folks have been traumatized by, by, by years of being ruled by Greco-Roman culture, Greco-culture and now Roman culture. And so they were simply trying to keep Israel separate to their God which had been a theme of the law from the very, very, very beginning. From, from the moment that God called um, Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and formed that community, they were separated unto God. The word holy doesn't mean pious. It means separate. It means separated unto something. And so they were doing a good thing. There was nothing wrong with this. This was something they were called to do. Secondly, they were about absolute commitment to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. For us, if you want to look at some analogy here in our own life, this would be our absolute commitment to the Bible. The Jewish law had 613 commandments, called out commandments, and they were, and then, then there was the oral tradition that would try to put more meaning onto the 613 commandments. And so the Pharisees were the experts at interpreting every detail of the Torah and applying it to the, to the detail of everyday life. Nothing wrong with that, man. They were taking the word of God seriously. Torah contained the heart of God. Nothing wrong with that. A lot good about that. 
And then thirdly, they were committed to preparing Israel for the first coming of, their, of her Messiah. Now, do, do you see any similarities today in some of what's happening? We, we're not quite there yet, but in our culture, we are so afraid of being assimilated either toward the right or toward the left, and we are so afraid. And so we're trying to hold on to whatever we think is the true Jesus, Christian, first century, whatever way of being, and then we are absolutely committed to the word of God, and well, we should be committed to the word of God. There's nothing wrong with either of those things. And then, of course, what you hear a lot about today and the way culture has changed is that you know everybody's talking about the return of Jesus, that he's coming back, and so this isn't just first century stuff. This has been true in church history, and it's true today. But I want you to notice how these commitments impacted the Pharisees' response. They said, are you deceived? They said to the temple guard, um, are any Pharisees believing in this Jesus? Absolutely not. And this crowd is accursed. So why? It's because when they began to grip, when they began to make things that weren't the main thing, the main thing, this is what happened to them. Look at these four things that you see right here in this text. They began to be motivated by fear and anger. They're absolutely defensive. When, when you find yourself being defensive, by the way, it, when Carl and I are arguing, which we still do after 45 years, 47 years of knowing each other, it's just part of being human. It's part of not being you know, clones of one another. You're gonna have different viewpoints. So when we're arguing some days, when I get the most, I tend to get, she gets quiet. When she gets a little defensive, and I get more loud. Can, can you imagine? When, when I get somewhat defensive. And in those moments, if I'm paying attention, I realize that that defensiveness, that fear and anger, which are always bed partners. Usually anger is the secondary emotion. Fear, anxiety, deep sadness is usually underneath the anger. It's always, there's always a reason for that defensiveness is what I'm saying. These folk were motivated by fear and the resulting rage that came from trying to calm down their own anxieties about whether Israel was going to stay the way God wanted it to stay. And then secondly, they began to use the scripture, not just to help people find God, but to control. They would cherry pick texts and ignore others. So for example, at the very end of this text, when the Pharisees respond to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus, um, and they say, has a prophet ever come out of Galilee? Well, absolutely, Jonah, we know for sure, came out of Galilee. So the common person wouldn't have known that. So they were cherry picking one text and ignoring other texts because of their fear and anxiety. That's what begins to happen to us when we feel something that we don't know what to do with. We're looking in the Bible to make sure. There's nothing wrong with looking in the Bible, but instead of looking to him, the main thing, we tend to look in the scripture to make sure that we've got it right because if we have it right, if we can just get it right, we won't be anxious anymore. Just two chapters earlier, Jesus had been talking to the Pharisees and he says, these scriptures testify of me, but you won't come to me 
to have life. And then thirdly, the comfort of their system became a priority. They had a lot of power, and they began to like it. Socially, politically, personally, they liked their tight system. I was listening to a podcast the other day by a therapist, Christian therapist, and it was on what happens to us during trauma. And trauma meaning not, I mean, we, we all have our little narrow definition of what trauma is, but trauma is simply a wound that the enemy perpetrates upon us that keeps us locked down at certain stages of life, emotionally and spiritually and psychologically, if we're not healed from that trauma. And he said what happens is he, there's like nine parts of the brain that are all intended to work together. And trauma begins to separate those parts of the brain. And it causes us to be very anxious. He said what a lot of religious people will do, don't miss this, is look for a tight system of theology, of Christianity, of denominationalism, whatever, the system, not Christ, the system, because the system, the tightness of the system begins to calm us down in our brains when we are living with so much unhealed trauma that makes us feel that anxiety. I can't tell you that's what was going on with these Pharisees, but I can tell you Israel had been living with trauma since the two exiles. And this community had been birthed out of trauma, sacrificing a pig on the altar. They wouldn't have known this, but I'm telling you, when we find ourselves trying to, starting to grip our system instead of letting the one who is love grip us, it might be time to take a step back and say, what's going on, Lord? What's going on? When we let a good thing become the main thing, it becomes a bad thing. And then lastly, what they did is they crafted a Messiah of their choosing. They ignored the real Messiah that was standing right in front of them, and they began to draw others away with the one that supported their agenda. When my girls were little, they had Barbie dolls. And they, <laughs> my goodness, man, they could play with those Barbie dolls for hours. And depending on what mood they were in, they would choose different outfits for their Barbie. I think so often that's what we do in our anxiety, in our fear. We co-opt different outfits. We choose different outfits for our Jesus. And then we try to make him into something that makes us feel better about our own pain. To make, a good, th to make a, a good thing the main thing always, always is a bad thing. Now today the battle is usually framed as between the right and the left, but you could, you could draw these analogies to, you know, we've got 40,000 denominations in the world today. And I know it's true because I heard it on the History Channel. There are over, listen to this, there are over 200 kinds of Baptists. And you wonder why the non-believing world goes, oh, I'm just ready to come home to Jesus. I mean, there's, there's 40,000 different systems that people are like, like gripping. And Jesus is somewhere with some kind of Barbie outfit. And so 
usually it's framed as right and left today. I'll just use that category for now. There's just enough truth, like it was with the Pharisees, in each of the places, right, left, middle, and when you take just a little bit of truth, cherry-picked probably, into a fearful, angry audience, because so many today, have you noticed this? We're so afraid of losing something. When I see someone who claims the name of Christ just shouting acid at someone else, whether they know Jesus or don't, I'm going, bro, whatever it is you think you're yelling about is not what you're yelling about. Something's going on, there's a wound, there's something. You've, you've taken a basically maybe a good thing, made it the main thing, and look what's happening. Hell is in the middle of this conversation. So holding onto that system, you've got the group holding onto the system, then you get put a persuasive orator, sometimes Bible in hand, with certain cherry-picked texts, by the way, have you noticed today everybody is so sure of every one of their interpretations? Oh my gosh, we know because we know. Are you, I was a church history major. Can I tell you for 2,000, people will say, can we just go back and be like it was in the first century? Do you know that the first century church was like a bunch of kittens that Paul was trying to herd? You put kittens on a table, they just start going like this. There was never a fully orthodox, unified view of Jesus from the moment that he was raised from the dead. Immediately, people began to interpret and go like this. I'm not saying we don't have to have our interpretations, but when we're gripping them like this with no humility, one of the things I see, for those of us who are trying to grip Jesus or let him grip us, there's a humility about us. Because certainty, grabbing certainty comes from those of us who are still, God love us, living with anxiety and fear that often turns into anger. And so you put that equation together and folks think they're speaking for Jesus. We look at it, we go, that's him. That, that's, that's, I haven't seen that outfit before on him, but I think that's the real one. That's what we're looking for. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 11 really gripped me during this time of study in this text. Paul says to the Corinthians, don't you know that Satan is an angel of light? He looks good on the surface. He doesn't come to us in a Halloween costume. He's looking good. He's looking pious. He's looking spiritual. And then he says, would you, would you be surprised to hear that his ministers, his servants, turn themselves into agents of righteousness, meaning supposed righteousness, what I see in Christian culture today is that we're so anxious, we're gripping, we're gripping, we're trying to find a system that's gonna make us feel better when we're really not looking for a system. Like the temple guard, we're looking for him. So this is a, a no judgment here. I mean, I'm you, you're me, we're in this together. But this is a cautionary tale this can be us. These Pharisees can be us. Metro Community Church can be the Pharisees. Very unwittingly. Do you think you'd wake up one Sunday morning and go, I think we're going to change the name of our church to Metro Pharisaical Community Church. <laughs> it will never be like that. So two questions to ask before we move to Nicodemus and then we'll be done. When folks come to Metro, 
do they sense? Do they sense the Jesus that loves them with all of their heart? And by the way, all these dressed up Barbie doll Jesuses that I see all over Christianity today, the one thing that John makes him about more than anything else, I don't see him often in the Jesus that's lifted up by these causes. And that's his love. For God so loved the world, we sang this morning, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Speaking to his disciples, if you will just listen to this new commandment, I'm leaving, you're staying, you're gonna represent me to the world. If you love one another as I've loved you, they'll know. John 15, as the Father has loved me, so love I you. One thing you've got to do is make your home in my love. John 21, Peter, you had a bad moment, son. I get it, you're home with me now. I have one question, not have you, have you changed your theology since you denied me? Have you done enough penance? Nothing of that. He says, do you love me? Because if you do, then you've got me, and then you're ready to go feed my sheep. Because that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for a system. They're looking for me and my love. And T. Wright says that since the cross, well he says it like this, it was the love of God that took Jesus to the cross. It was the love of God that kept Jesus on the cross. It was the love of God that when he said it is finished, it was the love that crushed the powers of darkness. He says since the resurrection, love is the new power. And so when people walk into Metro, when people are walking around in the street, they might be grabbing this or that or going to that cult or that Barbie doll dressed up Jesus. What they're looking for is him. What they're looking for is his love. I think it's a question. When I left my last church, the church in the tough neighborhood in Detroit, they said to me, what would, what would you say to us, Pastor, as you're leaving? I said, the one thing we've heard here for 16 years in this tough, broken down neighborhood all kinds of folk looking for healing with all kinds of maladies and wound and open sore. One thing we've heard consistently is I feel the love of somebody here. I, I, could it be Jesus, the love? I feel the love. I've never felt love like this. They walk up, I want to come back. I'm a little scared. You guys are too transparent, but I got to tell you, I feel the love. I said, if you ever stop hearing that, then not just something, but someone has left the building. I love this community. This is, we've said over the years, this is maybe of all the communities we've been in and that we've served, this is, this is home to us. When we come home, we feel like we are, we are indeed home. After our church hope back in the neighborhood, this is home to us. But I'm telling you, a question to ask is, when people come, before we say a word, do they feel the love that is oozing out of our pores because we come in every morning being in love with the one who is love. And then for us personally, when we're getting ready to share with someone, are we sharing the love of Jesus because our hearts are broken for them? Or are we co-opting Jesus 
dressing him up in a certain Barbie outfit because we want them to be about our cause. And then lastly, you got this cat named Nicodemus, almost done. This is astounding. He was a Pharisee himself, but at great risk, he pointed in this moment his fellow Pharisees back to Jesus. Does our law judge a man before we've heard him and before we've seen what he does? At great risk for him to himself, to support Jesus at this stage in his ministry was to become a blasphemer. And even though he was a Pharisee, he knew that this could be a death wish. But he lifted up, he didn't fight with these folks. He didn't say, take off his robe and say, you want a piece of this? He didn't, and I see that in Christianity to do. I'm like, whether you're on the left or on the right or in the middle or whether you're a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian, I see people ready to fight. Jesus, yet Jesus had a few moments with the Pharisees where he told them what was up. But for the most part, you know what he did in the end? Out of love, he gave his body to the Pharisees to put on a cross. This is not about fighting. It's about being in love with the one who is love and giving him away. So he lifted up Jesus. He said, guys, doesn't our law say, look at that one? How about looking at this one? And then lastly, Nicodemus, the reason he could do this is because back in John 3, and I, I know that this is on John's mind because he, refer, he goes, this is the one who had gone to see him. Like the temple guard, he's connecting the temple guard and their hearts with Nicodemus' heart as a Pharisee. He said, back in John 3, Nicodemus took his empty heart to Jesus. He fell in love, and there he found home. Like the older brother in the Luke 15 parable who sat outside the party with his arms like this, so sad, so empty, man. He was the obedient son, man. He had, he had his system and he gripped it, but he was empty. He wondered about the father's love. He was looking for the father's love. That was Nicodemus and he took that empty heart and the emptiness of that system to Jesus. And there, though it doesn't make a big splash in John 3, we see the evidence of it here. With Jesus, he found what his system could never give him. Systems promise fullness. They can never provide it. Systems promise answers. There, if you're asking questions, there will always be more questions. Paul says in Ephesians 3, that you might be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ because only his love will fill us with all the fullness of God. That's really the invitation of this morning, I think, to my brothers and sisters here, my beloved brothers and sisters at Metro, to allow yourself to feel, if this is where you find yourself this morning, to feel the emptiness of whatever system you've taken refuge in or feel the emptiness of whatever good thing you may have inadvertently made the main thing. Own it. Own the emptiness and step back and gaze 
upon the one who is your one great love. And then come away full, secure, home. You might say it like this. In the midst of all the cultural and religious fear and anger and chaos, Jesus invites us to fall in love with him and then courageously lift him up, allowing him, not the system, to draw God's wounded sons and daughters home. You know, one of the reasons this text became so important to me in the last few weeks is because I've lived this. You know, I came out of Dallas Seminary back in 1983, and Dallas Seminary's doctrinal statement is this long. And I throw a no sod at Dallas Seminary. They gave me a beautiful education, the ancient languages and whatever. But this is what I thought, this is it. And I lived into it, I was pretty disciplined. Six years into pastoral ministry, I got so depressed trying to make this system fill up this heart that one night I almost committed suicide. I think you guys know, I just preached a sermon driving back, I was, I was done. And in his grace, he saved my life, brought me home where my three daughters and my wife was, were sleeping. And he said, son, you got all of this, but this isn't what you were looking for. You were looking for me, and you were looking for my love. The one thing you don't know, you know all the Greek words, but you don't know that I love you. And I began to do this, and it changed my life. One last story. I read a couple of months ago about the founder of the Church of Satan in South Africa. Have you read this? And he was giving an interview, apparently at this Christian radio station. I think it was Christian, or maybe just one of the people was Christian. But anyway, it was all about Satanism and you know, the virtues of Satanism. And when he got done, a young woman who was a follower of Jesus, in love with Jesus, came out and didn't say a word to him, didn't try to push back, didn't say a word, just embraced him and wouldn't let him go. He said afterward, nothing like that has ever happened to me, especially from Christians. It impacted him so deeply he couldn't walk away. A couple months later, he was doing some kind of a satanic ritual, and he said, God, if you're there, that kind of love, I want you to show me that now. And in the middle of that satanic ritual, I can't remember, you know, when you take a picture of something, it, it kind of leaves off the last part of it, so I don't know exactly what happened at the end, but something happened in that moment when he said, that love, I think that's what I'm looking for. And God met him in that moment, in the former leader of the Church of Satan in South Africa in that moment came to Christ. No one talked him into anything. Someone who was in love with Jesus like Nicodemus said, here he is. It's time for you to come home. My father, you, you sanctify these words to our hearts. Whisper to your sons and daughters what you want them to receive from you this morning. What burden you want to lift where you want to come close. Above all, whisper to them, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. 
And I'm never, ever, ever letting you go through Christ. Amen. Amen.